Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm very happy today to be joined by Bob Vitalis. Bob is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's an old friend and colleague, or I should, I've got to stop saying old. He's a longtime friend and colleague. He is the author of four books and many articles and essays that don't fit neatly into academic categories, which is one of the things that I've always admired about Bob. His most recent book, published in 2020, and I believe recently out in paperback, is called Oil Craft, The Myths and Scarcity, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. That was published by Stanford University Press. That book is a relentless assault on all matters of perceived thinking about U.S. energy policy and more broadly about how public figures, including elected officials and intellectuals, think, talk, and make policy, particularly where oil and gas are concerned. So I'm thrilled to have Bob here as, as the some of the politics around the Russian invasion of Ukraine unfolded. I thought immediately of Bob. And I'm really pleased that you're here, Bob. Thanks for taking the time to be here. I know you had to teach class this morning. How'd it go? Uh, the class the class was great, but you know it was a, a much less interesting topic: the Arab-Israeli conflict. So, <laughs> which is which which it no longer matters as far as I can see. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it hasn't aged well. I guess I don't know. It's weird. So. As I said, I'm really glad you're here. Let's let's dive into it. There are m- multiple points of entry for this as we were discussing offline. You know, one aspect of what's happening in Ukraine as we speak has been oil supply, and it's been a much discussed factor in the U.S. response and in, in the NATO response to the to everybody's response, really, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Biden administration has declared a I guess what will be an eventual ban on what they're calling Russian oil entering the U.S. So I want to just give you a chance to swing away at the outset. When we were talking about this, you know, when when I invited you, you said, "Yeah, there's like a million things out there." So, like, just start with what's what's really stuck out to you in this discussion. Okay, um, it, it, and and that's true. You know, uh, what I've been most interested in, you know, I'm a professor, right? And that's a good thing and or a bad thing. And we could just study what we like. So what I'm really interested in, after having written that book that you uh, led with, is basically people's beliefs. And what I what I would either call kind of crazy beliefs about uh, oil security or oil scarcity, or we could we could be more formal about it and call it uh, the factitious beliefs that people hold about these things. So so as the you know crisis was gearing up, I started kind of cataloging how people were talking uh, about uh, the oil war dimension of this conflict. Um, um, and no one has actually called it an oil war yet, except for people, as far as I can see, on the radical left or the far left who believe every 
uh, aspect of U.S. foreign policy across the globe has some connection to oil. But that said, you can think yourself about what we've been hearing. Well, one discourse that comes powerfully uh, back into play and it's relevant to Texas is this vision of of energy independence, right? As a as a goal of U.S. foreign policy. Now that's been the goal of U.S. foreign policy ostensibly for every president since the so-called uh, oil price shock or oil crisis of 1973. Now. And what's impressive about that is if that's a uh, been a goal of every president since 1973, they're not doing too well on it because here it is 2022 and we're still talking about it, right? You know, the basic answer as to why why uh, it, it, they're not doing well uh, on it is because it's an impo- it's an impossibility. It's like a political discourse with no real meaning uh, uh, and significance. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it's getting evoked again. Now we have, you know, and I'm I'm treading on thin ice when I bring this up because again, I realize I'm talking to Texans, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we first made our acquaintance in uh, 1987, and in 1987, when I first came to Austin, Texas, to teach at UT, uh, we were in the midst of this uh, uh, disaster. Oil prices had collapsed. And, you know, as a young graduate student who just getting his first job, I had no retirement account uh, to speak. I had no retirement <laughs> account. So the, the, the thing was irrelevant to me. But every one of our colleagues, you know, were, they were going to throw themselves out windows uh, because so much of tech, you know, so much of the UT retirement account system, the investments of those uh, uh, mutual funds and so forth were invested in the oil industry, right? And UT's own endowment uh, is dependent on oil. So that price collapse was a real, was a you know, was a was a real wake up call for a lot of people, right? So those that's the old days of, or you know, one version of the old days of energy price collapses when no one's talking about energy independence. You know, at that point they're talking about trying to get the prices up. So that so. I realize now speaking to Texans who depend, you know, it, it, yes, you have to pay for oil when you, when as consumers, uh, uh, when you're going to the gas stations, but much more important, you're an oil state. You know, you, California, uh, uh, and a few others are oil states that depend on uh, uh, high prices to pay the school system, to pay all sorts of things. So when we hear the domestic industry and its spokespeople and its Congress people uh, evoking, talking about energy independence today and or bashing Biden, right? Uh, um, and I'm sure this is going on in Texas uh, among the Republicans. I mean, Biden's being blamed for the oil price rise, right? That we're now experiencing. And there are plenty of spurious ways to make that claim and defend it. And what the domestic industry has said is Biden has tied our hands, right? So what are the examples they use? Biden closed down the Keystone uh, uh, to pipeline. Uh, Biden uh, stopped all new leases in uh, Alaska, et cetera. And these are pointed to as the reasons why oil prices are going up. Well, you, you know, we could spend hours talking about this, but, but that's just nonsense, Right, it has had nothing to do with the price rises uh, that we're experiencing, but what it does confirm is that 
political interests and economic interests deploy these kinds of arguments at key moments in order to uh, advance, you know, advance their own fortunes. So sure, it would be great if, um, for instance, a whole new set of subsidies are developed for the domestic oil and gas industry. None of that will lead to more oil production in the next three months or six months or 12 months, right? Um, and I just want you to think back to the fracking boom of a few years ago, and then what happened during the pandemic, right? When oil prices again collapsed, uh, uh, future prices were in negative numbers, you know, for the, for the first time. Uh, and we can, we, we know the answer as to why we have, why there's less oil or why the fracking community and the shale community other oil producers are not producing a lot of uh, oil. Prices were too low. Uh, both prices were too low, and the financial sector that funded right the production of you know various uh, firms in Texas and elsewhere. And I tell you, I've had I have graduate students. Now these were Wharton graduate students, not political science graduate students, who took their degrees and immediately started investing in a well or two uh, for the for the you know for uh, for the last fracking boom. But what was clear was it wasn't going to last, right? So we know we know basically that the, that the oil industry needs price needs a certain price uh, uh, below which uh, they're going to shut down their wells uh, and below which uh, finance is not going to is not going to loan money. Uh, especially since there were so many defaults around that last fracking boom and finance lost a lot uh, of capital. So they're, they've been reluctant to invest. But any kind of investment to increase production is a, is a multi-year you know, effort, basically. So anything that the Biden administration announces now in response to the domestic oil and gas industry is basically a kind of a public relations ploy that will not, in fact, uh, uh, solve any of the of the price problems of the moment. So there's this, you know, there's the oil, the, there's this, there's this like factitious notion of independence, as if we can somehow escape uh, the problem of oil imports or being de- so being dependent ourselves on the autocrats. On all of a sudden, uh, Putin is now a madman. We don't want these things, but. The real important point is that we will never be able to escape the issues that we are now suffering through. So higher prices of oil, whether or not we're importing 5%, 15%, 18% of oil consumption, it's irrelevant because the price is set on a world market. And Texas sells its oil, exports its oil, right, uh, on that on that same market. So prices, you know, prices are increasing everywhere, right? That's the other kind of funny argument. I don't I don't know what it looks like in Texas or but if you drive to gas stations now in Pennsylvania, there's a little sticker and it's a sticker of Biden and his fingers pointing to the um to that part of the filling station pump that indicates the price. <laughs> and it says on the sticker, I, I've done this. Okay. So this idea that it's Biden's fault that the price is going up. Right. And then, you know, and all one needs to do to reverse that is to recognize that the same price increases are affecting, the, affecting uh, consumers 
in Europe, you know, in Asia, and everywhere else. And unless you think Biden's caused that, you know, caused those price rises as well, uh, you've got a problem. So, so the takeaway here is there is no independence in the world oil market. There's no way to insulate ourselves from price increases, which is what we're stressed about now, unless we erect a whole protectionist regime, right? Ban oil imports and, and set uh, uh, price controls in the United States. And I guarantee you, no oil producer in Texas uh, wants to see price controls again as they existed uh, in the 1970s and until the Reagan administration emerged. Well, now hold on a second. I should, I just want to qualify that. They might not want price controls, but of course, Texas was the model for OPEC meaning the Texas Railroad Commission. So there there has been a level of, of coordination of production in Texas for the longest time, right, to try to secure a, 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 a reasonable price for that oil. Uh, and right now, it kind of doesn't matter what the Texas Railroad Commission does because oil prices have skyrocketed. So it's just this, it's obviously a boon, uh, for West Texas and uh, other places, but it it has really Biden has had nothing to do with it. Though the Republicans have been uh, uh, running with this now for the you know past. Yeah, I mean, weeks. It's, it's always it struck me when we talk about these about a subject like this, and in particular with oil, that you know the market that in some that in some circumstances is given superhuman powers seems you know readily ignored in in other circumstances and and talking right. about that political agenda i mean i you know the other game that is very much afoot certainly in the state right now which is connected to the to the energy outages here last year is that this is being taken as an opportunity to blame you know i mean the the, the adjunct of blaming biden is blaming too much attention to climate change into alternative energy mm -hmm. right yeah, well, you know that uh, um, because I'm sorry, I'm laughing, no, but because uh, because of the crisis, right? You know, all of a sudden, you know, anyone who was arguing uh, for uh, 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 you know a, a, a turn to renewables, et cetera, is now on the defensive. Yes, we need this, right? But climate change is going to have to wait. Uh, uh, and of course, here's the problem: uh, you can't. It can't wait, right? <laughs> it's but that is certainly where that is certainly uh, where the where the kind of political thrust of argument is now, and it's drowning out uh, uh, any other possibility. Like, isn't this high time for a new round of conservation renewables and so forth? Yeah, and actually, no, not right yeah, now. Yeah, it's run, you know here I can I can attest to the fact it's running in the opposite direction right now. That you know the current instability in the market is fueling those that for the last year have been blaming. You know the failure of the grid, ironically, on the unreliability. You know the lack of reliability of renewable resources, mm -hmm. for which there is very little to you know almost zero evidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, evidence doesn't. Right. Well, who yeah, needs I, evidence? I know it's quaint that I mentioned that, but I just I felt <laughs> I felt like I should, and it's permeating you know all all levels of the discussion. So and and much of this is going on out of the public view and not because necessarily it's being done secretly, but because it's complicated and it's just the grinding of the gears of regulatory policy in the state. But, you know, you don't have to dig very deep into most of the proposals about how to re-engineer the electricity market 
in a way that will hopefully avoid future blackouts, at least ostensibly, you know, that's being taken as an opportunity to, you know, push back against all of the, the pro- you know, a lot of the progress that had made, been made on renewables over the last 15 years or so. So, uh, uh, you go know, ahead. No, I was just going to tell you, it's just an aside. Um, uh, it's great talking with you, but if you really want to talk to someone who knows this subject and especially the electricity markets inside out, uh, Leah Stokes, uh, at a UCSD is like, uh, is basically God. She's amazing. Uh, she's got her own podcast. At some point you should look her up and consider, you know, uh, uh bringing her on because she's really, she's really serious, uh, uh, uh about issues of conservation, et cetera. And she knows her stuff. You know, the engineers respect her uh, like crazy. So. And, that's, and that's hard to do, really, because there's a lot of noise out there. That's great. Noted. So mm-hmm. so let's talk about Boris Johnson going to visit the Saudis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> just, um, just a flag for, for listeners, uh, you know, as Bob and I are recording this on, on early Wednesday afternoon, um, Boris Johnson is in the Gulf scheduled like he landed in the UAE and then was meeting with with representatives of the Saudi government today to talk about presumably although we'll see what Bob thinks of this the Saudis increasing production which seems like a long shot to me but this is one example of a long history of one leader or another going to Saudi Arabia and asking for either okay increasing production or <laughs> Uh, back back in the late 80s, okay, um, when the oil prices collapsed, uh, uh, the first uh, Bush administration went begging them to produce less oil, right. right? So as to right, so as to prop up prices. Here's the problem. There, well, there, well, there's two problems. We have no evidence that the Saudis have ever responded favorably to any request of this sort. I would invite you to try to find examples of this. People assume that the Saudis do certain things for the United States around energy markets, et cetera, around oil pricing, but I've yet to find any clear evidence that that is true or that the Saudis have done anything they wouldn't otherwise have done at a particular moment. But they're certainly going to try to milk it for all it's worth. So, for instance, you know, we have talked about whether President Biden should go to Saudi Arabia now and try to get the Saudis to increase production. And Mohammed bin Salman has already laid out some conditions, ostensibly, in return for upping production. And you you can't see my scare quotes because it's not clear to me that they would ever actually up production. And it's not even clear that they have the capacity to up production at this point because the Saudis exaggerate their spare capacity. Typically, in most serious analysts, uh, think they're really producing at near capacity. One of the reasons we know this is is that Saudi Arabia and other OPEC producers have not actually been able to make the quotas they gave themselves, uh, you know, in their last OPEC plus agreement, which means they should be they they should be allowed to produce more oil than they can without a threat to the price, but they're not being able to do it right. So that's an argument. You know, you could either imagine they're all colluding uh, to keep the price sky, uh, sky high. Or a more reasonable uh, answer is is that they, you know, again, uh, spare capacity or increasing capacity is a time lagged uh, uh, process. 
So if you've not invested in fields or if you shut down wells over the past three or four years because of the COVID oil crisis, um, you're going to have a hard time getting more oil to market in any kind of reasonably fast way to deal with the concerns of the moment. But still, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, has set some conditions <laughs> you know, that has to be met, which is he wants sovereign immunity from the trials, from the suits that have been launched in the response to the Khashoggi killing is one of them. He's asked for more support for the Saudi war in Yemen from the United States' part. And as this ex-human rights director points out, so we've got this like kind of curious, you know, uh, moment where in order to stop and because of the killings of Ukrainians, right, the United States is going to go to Saudi Arabia and possibly uh, add to the worst crisis, uh, humanitarian crisis in the world today, which is the death and destruction of an entire country of Yemen. And uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people who are suffering in a seven year war. So there's, you know, there's this paradox there. But anything, it, you know, Jim, I hate to say this, but I am cynical. All the moves, well, we're going to talk to Maduro, right. maybe get Iranian production back online, talk to Saudi Arabia. Th- th- this is political posturing because it will have no particular impact on the market, save, I guess, in the perceptions of oil traders and future traders, possibly imagining that there's going to be, you know, a release of uh, 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 increased production uh, down the road. But it's highly unlikely uh, that we're going to see that there's anything the United States can do that's going to alter the, alter the price uh, uh, that, we're, that, that the world is paying at the present time. And as you know, uh, 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 better than most people, those oil prices matter a lot uh, in terms of um, uh, the coming midterms. And so forth. That's what's really scaring the Democrats. Yeah. So that you know that leads to a big question that falls out of this that I that I wanted to ask you because it does it, it cuts in some ways to the heart of your book. I mean, how do you separate out other than you know the way that you do it? I mean, through careful you know voluminous reading and and interpretation. But even when you watch these things unfold, how do you sort out the mixture between theatrics and just you know people that have internalized these myths that you're talking about? I mean, so, you, you know, when you're talking of, you know, you just sort of describe this sequence of events in which, you know, the United States is going to, you know, or, or the Brits, the, you know, call whoever you want are going to go and engage in this negotiation with, you know, the Saudi leadership, with the Venezuelan leadership, with whoever they can negotiate with. And it seems to me, it, you know, it has to be a mixture of the, the, the kind of theatrics, and I think the term you used was posturing. But also some people just having fundamentally bad ideas. Is that right? That they, that they just think that there's something to this, that they can somehow negotiate something that will have an impact. I mean. Or there's something in particular that the Saudis can do. Yes. I, I mean, that's just exaggerate. I mean, look, we have routinely exaggerated Saudi Arabia's influence over oil pricing for decades. First, we imagine OPEC. Right, this organization somehow every you know if if you just go track how newspapers talk about it, OPEC makes an agreement you know to limit production, and it's assumed that somehow that agreement itself is somehow affecting the prices, right? And in fact, right, it is not. 
right? It, it is very rarely that OPEC has been able to stop price crashes, okay? And very rarely and on the margin is it able to up the price more uh, than it already is in any particular uh, uh, moment in the oil market. And I don't want to geek out on this, but <laughs> if you, if, I mean, just think about it. What explains price rises and falls, right? It's market demand, right. <laughs> you know, and supply. Again, prices collapsed uh, in the past few years because a uh, demand collapsed because of the COVID crisis. Now, prices are going up as the COVID crisis abates, correct? And what do we know? There's inflation. Why is there inflation? Because there's, you know, demands chasing too few goods in all sorts of markets. So if we were to look at the pricing for any other commodity, let us forget the com- and forget just primary commodities. If we were looking, you know, think about the price of cars, right, or any any other consumer go- durable or non durable, we're going to find out that prices are rising in all those in all those commodities. Right, so some some uh, there's some other drivers, basically macroeconomic drivers of you know price, supply, and demand, and commodities track one another really carefully. But still, people think somehow oil has this you know magic power that it's oil itself that is doing this, and then behind the oil is the are the oil producers, right? So for folks who don't like the Arabs, it's OPEC. For some people on the left, they still don't believe that OPEC and Saudi Arabia are independent actors in the oil market. They still believe that it's big oil or the United United States imperial project controlling the oil markets and the Saudis, you know, the Saudis dutifully following what the United States wants it to. And it's really none of those things. I want to follow up on that. I'm trying to think about where I want to go next with that. I, I I want to pivot back a little bit in the direction of the here and now and you know whether you think so so how do you apply that to the moves against Russia I mean what is the impact of this it strikes me that it's it's going to be hard right. to completely cut off if this is really the goal any market for Russian oil because of the the power of the market forces you're talking about and because of certain reluctance to really make that happen right Yeah I'm I'm hesitating here for the following reason. That, that that sounded more like it, a statement than a question, but it was an honest question. <laughs> no, no, no. I get it. There's a couple of things I want to I want to say about this. First, let's stop and just think about what this moment teaches us. There are many things that this moment can teach us, but let's think of one thing because we're now aware of it. If you have to go to Maduro, or if you have to think about renegotiating the nuclear agreement with Iran in order to get Iran production back on the market, right? What what do we conclude from that? That one of the major sources for the failure to produce oil at the level that demand want that, that consumers wanted is the United States itself. I'm not I'm not saying that in a in a in a smart way. So let me reframe it. The United States is one of the main forces limiting the amount of oil that's on the world market at any particular moment, right? We've we've sanctioned Venezuela. We've sanctioned Iran for decades. We're sanctioning Libya, 
etc. These were all oil suppliers, right? So any notion that the United States is, you know, what people believe is the United States is in the Persian Gulf, in the Middle East, exercising its power in order to guarantee the free flow of oil at reasonable prices. Well, that generalization that President Obama has made and every other president except Trump, he's talked about it indifferently, but but every claim about the United States being this like kind of force to smooth the free flow of oil is contradicted by the fact that the United States is the force that is reducing, you know, the oil available on the world market. Now, you can make a wrong conclusion about this and you can make a right conclusion about it. The wrong one is, is aha, it's the United States is really trying to keep the price up. Right. And that's and that's a gift to the oil firms yeah. and in return in in the arms industry. And there's like this conspiracy between big oil arms in the United States to keep oil prices up and then have more wars and sell more arms. I don't think we have good evidence for that. You know, correlation is not causation. The correct conclusion to draw from it is, is that oil, it's kind of funny that Oil disappears and appears as a foreign policy problem, right? You know, if there was an oil supply problem that is really critical for the United States, and to go back to our first uh, uh, set of claims about, if it's really crucial to pursue energy independence, why does the subject disappear for years and then and then all of a sudden reappears again and becomes a crisis and so forth? Roughly, I think it's because. And I'm just stealing this line from actually a guy who was Obama's science advisor, but way before that, you know, he was an expert on energy. And he basically says he has to conclude that that the kind of oil as a problem is 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 a is a is a political tool. It's used for other purposes. And uh, you know, we gave you one. We started off with one of them, right? You can you can run with energy independence in order to try to increase to get subsidies for your industry and so forth. So it's a it's not a p- political problem in the normal sense because it disappears from view, it reappears and so forth. Now, as far as Russia goes, right? What's interesting is what we've learned what has been the most surprising thing for me and what I've had to kind of uh, get up to speed on very quickly is how uh, financial sanctions work and, you know, and to what extent preventing the Russians from accessing the global financial system, right, uh, is, is, a real co- is a real threat to their economy. And, and, and we're seeing it in a way, right? And the result of doing that, right, applying those sanctions you know, has led to a whole set of firms and traders uh, and and financial firms from, for lack of a better term, as far as we can see, self-embargoing the Russians. Right? right? They don't want to get trapped uh, buying. Uh, they don't. They they both don't want to be caught up in a, in a bind where, uh, because of future sanctions, they are in fact uh, liable because the United States has exacted vast penalties on banks and other financial businesses in previous moments of economic sanctioning and their effects. So so we know that the Russians are having a harder and harder time getting their oil to market, right? Even as we have not formally sanctioned the or we have not formally embargoed Russian supply, 
And when we talk about, the United States has talked about embargoing it in the future or has declared an embargo, but it's not yet to go into effect for 45 days or so. You know, again, I think that's all about uh, uh, optics, basically, because it is really not going to solve any kind of price problem for the United States, quite the opposite, right? It's just really going to lead to price increases that we're going to have to suffer through, but not suffer through as much as Europeans are going to have to suffer because they're more dependent on Russian oil than the United States is. So we can embargo Russia and what what is going to happen, right? They're going to move that oil into other markets, but at a discount, China- Uh, uh, for instance, every country that's been sanctioned in the past are, is still getting a certain amount of their production on, on, you know, into market. But that just means a whole lot of inefficiency, middlemen, right, Sm- smaller profits for the producers themselves, and vast rewards for the shady guys who are, you know, selling it in various ways. So it, some some production will be will continue. It is possible to reduce purchases of Russian oil as a further, you know, kind of a sanction on it. We're going to run out of time soon, but I want to to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about another theme in longtime theme in a lot of the work that you've done that has kind of come up a little bit, or I think implicitly here. And I'm wondering, and I want to talk about race a little bit. I mean, you've been very persistent during your career in pointing out the play of race as a formative factor in both policy and about thinking in international relations. One of the themes that's been bubbling under the humanitarian disaster that is unfolding in Ukraine has been the observation that while the suffering in Ukraine is clearly real and happening on a large and horrific scale, that the fact that it's happening in a predominantly white country in Europe has earned it more attention than either past or even ongoing humanitarian crises in other parts of the world. And you helped set me up for this a little bit by setting up the the, the issue of Yemen and where that plays into Saudi relations with the West. I, you know, do you think that criticism? I mean, you're you're very good, I think, at being clear-eyed about both the left and the right. So, two related questions. You think that criticism is fair and well grounded? And if so, I'm wondering how you think about the the difficulties of recognizing both the real suffering that's clearly going on in Ukraine, while still keeping the larger frame of how racism influences perceptions, attention, you know, the very construction of these issues. There is no doubt, right, when you hear newscasters clearly, you know- Say the quiet uh, part uh, out loud. (laughs) Yes. I mean, you know, God, this is different. This is a white country. These people look like us. I believe believe the phrase of art is the heart of Europe. (laughs) <laughs> All right. But, you know, and, and they have Netflix accounts, not like Syrians, you know, uh, et, et cetera, or they're not from the third, you know, they're not the third world, et cetera. Right. But they've used, they've used civilized, they've used look like us. Sure. That exists. It does it explain the kind of policy we're pursuing. I don't think so. It's not because they're white that we're supporting the Ukrainians at the present time. They happen to be, right? The Ukrainian story is in the news now. And partly, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but it's partly in the news because it's a new story, right? Yemen Yemen has been going on uh, for seven years or so, right? But, but the, you know, I guess we can step back and say this. There's a there's a kind of tendency. I I've been I've been guilty of it in the past that I'm rethinking now, but this idea of exposing a government for its hypocrisy, 
right? So this idea, you know, how can the United States be for Ukraine but be against Palestine, right? It, as if somehow any government, right, is going to pursue the principles by, under which they articulate certain policies, right, above all else. But there's like an intervening variable, that goes a long way to explaining the differing responses to Yemen or Palestine or Syria and so forth, which is other countries' allies or enemies of the United States, right? right? I mean, uh, <laughs> that's the you know that's the explanation, right? And it's not they're not against uh, Venezuela or Iran because we perceive them as a, you know, as a different race or because they're Muslims and so forth. So some people believe it. They are enemies, reasonably or no, because they are, they are countries that are acting to resist, right, or challenge American preferences for how the world is ordered. It seems pretty straightforward. You know, uh, and I think that goes much farther. That helps. That helps us to understand the problem much more than sort of saying it's just darker people, et cetera. And you know, since I do Middle East politics, it's a lot of my friends are concerned about this particular problem, or you know, friends whose families are still in Syria, et cetera. Yeah, it. it I just don't think hypocrisy gets us. I think hypocrisy is a way of making ourselves feel better because we don't really expect countries to, you know, uh, deploy a set of principles, to hold up the set of principles themselves as the first order driver of any particular policy. So that raises another set of interesting questions and most people in the studio are going, they're never going to stop, but I'm going to ask it anyway, <laughs> because so, you know, and, and it does sort of touch on work I think you're, you're doing for your next project. And, you know, the idea of the perception of national interest in a sense, or U.S. interests is a huge, I think you called it an intervening variable and is a big driver of reactions to this. But with Russia, there is some noise on the lines. And I know that you've been listening to some of the, listening to the work of and reading the work of some of these emergent you know, figures that have emerged on the right. And Russia has occupied an odd space in that, you know, just to be frank, as a result of both Trump and what is widely, I think, and maybe correct, even correctly being seen as a kind of illiberal turn in some corners of what we used to think of as conservative activists in the country. Um, so how does, you know, I'm wondering how, how you're making sense of, of views of Russia and, and, and how this affects this and, and what, how it plays out in politics. Well, That's a big, quite generally uh, airy right, question, yeah, but I do know you—you know—you you made the mistake of telling me you've been looking into this stuff, so I want to ask what you think. <laughs> it's kind of—it's interesting to me, right? So this is—I I mean, everything I say is provisional, <laughs> but this is really provisional. And but I was talking about this with my foreign policy seminar the other day. The if you want the MAGA right or the radical right, uh, the Bannonites, etc., are kind of quiet about the war, because I think there's this understanding, right, that popular opinion is against what Russians are doing. And you would expect, you would have expected to see more outright support, right, or defense of Putin as the strong man, et cetera, than we're actually seeing. So my favorite, Sebastian Gorka, is a case in point. Gorka's from East Europe. He himself, you know, has opposed 
you know, the war. He doesn't think this is a good idea because he remembers what happened to his own country, you know, in earlier days with the Soviet Union. So there's no defense of uh, uh, Russia uh, by a guy like Gorka, but there's an attempt to kind of blame Biden for the war itself, to try to turn it into yet another cudgel uh, to beat up Biden on. or And Bannon's doing the same thing. Bannon's basically saying, the United States is now at war with Russia. If there's a need to be at war, why doesn't, why doesn't Biden come before the American people and explain the stakes? He's afraid to do it, you know, because uh, he's deluding us all. But no one is like kind of embraced the Putin argument about why it's going to war. Uh, um, and there's uh, one more thing to say about it. the best they can say is why is the United States concerned with what ultimately is a is how they put it a border conflict or yeah a border conflict in a place far away from the United States right so that's an argument about you know if if you translate that is that's an argument to an anti interventionist argument right. right where I think you know where a lot of people are but you know I wanted to say one more thing about this and this might drive your listeners crazy but I've been thinking about it for the past two days because good friends of mine are are you know producing texts all the time that are basically describing Putin himself right? As a madman, irrational, a sociopath. Now, I want you to think about what other madmen, you know, irrational sociopaths that we've targeted in the past, you know, Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad. You know, I don't love any of those folks, but I don't know that one has to, that just seems to me one of these other instinctual moves to make uh, that make people feel better that in that also distance ourselves from the following thing. And I'm against the kind of what about ism. This war is driving me crazy. I think folks go too far with this what about ism. But, you know, when my father in law tells me Putin's just crazy, he's Hitler, right? But I know what does Putin talk, you know, how has Putin framed this conflict, right? There's a, uh, you know, he was seeking regime change. Right. In a corrupt country that was oppressing Russians. Right. But it's it's a regime change move. Well, we and Putin has sort of said, you know, you guys intervene and do regime change all the time. Right. But we you know, I don't know. How do you explain you know, our intervention in Iraq, no one would call uh, George Bush a madman, a sociopath, etc. Yes, there's a bureaucratic element to this decision to go to war, but we went to war nonetheless. And we hate the fact that we were misled with data, you know, with false intelligence and so forth. But this kind of Demonizing Putin as a madman or Hitler, um, it really, I think, is uh, is a problem basically because it, you know, it doesn't seem like so mad or crazy to me whether you know whether I think this is a reasonable policy or not. Sorry, and I realize we went off on a tangent, but uh, uh, it's it's kind of driving me crazy. These well, days. I, you know, I think it's you know, I was having a, a similar conversation with somebody recently along those lines, and I, you know, it's not helpful. Right. It doesn't really help yeah. explain <laughs> anything. It doesn't give right. you a policy right. route out. It doesn't give you a, str- a strategy. Right. It almost abdicates responsibility for That's right. figuring out what a real, you know, the way that, you know, we muddle through real world problems, right? You, you, you throw right. up your That's hand exactly and just go, oh, right. he's crazy. What are we going to do? All we have to do is, you know, I don't know, come up with some extreme solution or something. So I, I, I would agree with that. I think it's not helpful. 
it is not helpful at all. And and this exaggeration of this is the first war since 1945. I mean, all these kinds of arguments about the unprecedented nature of this conflict. There are problems with that. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to my wife about Yugoslavia this morning, which, Mm -hmm. you know, not similar in in a lot of important ways, but similar in other ways that in terms of Mm -hmm. the public perception of it and how it plays in a sense and the dilemmas it poses for U.S. policy. But, in our, I mean, we have short memories, yeah. too. That's the other problem, right? We have short memories and we, mytho- and we mythologize a lot. To get back to our subject and we can kind of end there, we think we understand what happened in 1973 in the oil crisis. And every story about oil today in 2022 has evoked 1973 in one way or another. But the understandings of that, they're just like little set pieces at this point, rather than, you know, clearly thought out, evidence-based understandings of of a past moment. They're more like talk, you know, imagining the Revolutionary War and Paul Revere's ride or the, you know, the the uh, Boston Tea Party and things like this. These set pieces that really don't have a lot of uh, validity, you know, uh, it's not the way it actually happened, etc. So that's a moment that ha- occurred 50 or 60 years ago. F- folks think they know what it implications are and they deploy it here in 2022. But I'm really, you know, I, we could have another show where I can talk about all the kind of crazy ideas. Well, and we may. About yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I mean, because it is going back through your book again, you know, having just seen everybody pull out their B-roll of gas lines from the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was a really, I mean, it really made the point that you're making now. Bob, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, I, man. I, I miss you, Jim. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I you, sir. So thanks to Bob for being here. Uh, Bob, I wish you were here so we could wrap this up, talk about it for another hour, and then go out and see some music because it's South by Southwest uh-huh. time and there's stuff just down the block. Continental Drifters, you got to go see them, Jim. <laughs> I, saw that they, I saw that they were doing that gig. There's a lot of that going on, This, you know, that, that era kind of happening right now around here. Mm. So um, I'm jealous. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's Friday night show with a bunch of bands that you've seen, the, the Yard Dog show with. The Wild Seeds and a bunch of other bands from that era. Oh, so, unbelievable. There you go. Well, take good care of you. You too, Bob. It was really good to have you here. So, thanks to Bob. Thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio and the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find this podcast much more and polling data on some of the stuff we actually talked about today, even including views of Putin and Russia at the Texas Politics Project website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu and we'll be back soon with another second reading podcast have a good week and so long the second reading podcast is a production of the texas politics project at the university of texas at austin 